Hello, everybody. This is Two Guys Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasper. This is Frank Pelican. Tonight's episode is number 66. The date is March 15, 2020, and the episode topic tonight is the top five dystopian films. How are you feeling about this category, Frank, considering? Um, <clears throat> but I guess we couldn't have predicted how like prescient it would be you know like two months ago when we started talking about doing it so yeah this um this was not planned just so everybody yeah. knows uh just the pure happenstance uh this wasn't even the original topic to some degree when right. we um when we first you know, created this category um and kind of morphed into it a couple months ago yeah um but yeah a little odd um considering um everything Right, because originally over the summer, I had, I, had, I had called this podcast Man versus the Man, mm-hmm. which was supposed to be about, like, individuals versus, like, society or, like, big corporations or whatever. I don't know. Mostly, I just wanted to talk about a couple movies, one of which is on the list and one of which doesn't really fit with the topic anymore. And then, like, I don't know what, like, January, I was like, you know what, let's just do it, like, as this, because I think we can do this one easier. And Yeah. Now here we and, are, and now we get to talk about movies that are way too <laughs> realistic, possibly right. for um, what uh, you know the yeah. planet's experiencing right now. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, well, I'm gonna hold off on asking you about some other movies in the genre okay. of dystopian movies, and I want to start off because I know we want to spend a little bit of time talking about uh, actor Max, Max von Sydow, the uh, Swedish actor who passed away this week at age 90. And uh, so I'll go ahead and put a timestamp on the description of the episode for everybody, just in case they didn't want to listen to us talk about Max von Sydow for, you know, 10, 15 minutes. But uh, I know, Frank, this is, uh, as a Bergman fan, this is somebody that you have know really well and yeah. um, wanted to talk about. So uh, what do you want to say? He's one of my favorite actors, um, especially when I was younger. <clears throat> one of the first guys like him, people like him and Tashiro Mifune, that so, I don't know, clearly identify with like a specific director. Um, C. Dow's in, I don't know, I think like, I don't know exactly how many, maybe 10 Bergman movies, maybe more than that. But like <clears throat> some of my favorite Bergman movies, you know, he plays a prominent role in. <clears throat> particularly uh the virgin spring which is maybe my favorite bergman movie and one of my favorite movies like of all time um most famously though i would say i guess the seventh seventh seal, seal. yeah he plays the knight errant that's yeah. like playing chess with death right um really good uh naturalistic actor um who is able to take like the weightier i don't know like moral and existential ideas that Bergman had in his films and kind of convey them in a, a human way. Um, you know, a guy that made his mark throughout, like, the history of films since the 50s, I suppose, um, were his first films, maybe even the 40s, um, and then throughout, like, continued to act up until recently, including was in um, Force Awakens or... It's Force Awakens, yeah. Yeah. He was in. Um... Yeah, it's kind of like a, a, a tale of two careers, it seems. There's, right. there's the Bergman career and his acting in the Swedish film and television, and then as he moves over to the States, uh, it's, it's kind of like a whole new career as he starts doing things in England and France and America. Yeah, and 
probably pretty familiar to most people. I mean, I think that if there's a lot of movies that you've seen that many people have seen that, sure. that Sadao is in. And well, he, probably most famously, I would think, is The, exor- <clears throat> the Exorcist, correct? Yeah, and The Exorcist. Um, some other stuff, too, though, like... Uh, he plays the devil, Leland Gaunt character in Needful Things. Um, he's in what else is like really famous? Flash Gordon. Yeah, Flash Gordon. He plays Ming the Merciless. Yep. Um, bunch of weird, like B horror and science fiction throughout the seventies and eighties. I mean, he really just like kind of found a niche as a character actor. Yeah. Um, but a really, really powerful actors in some amazing like classics of film sure and some not so classics like i mean one of the things that i think the first time maybe i ever possibly saw max von Sydow was uh dreamscape oh yeah the dennis quay movie because that's one of those odd ones that i grew up on and watched way too many times and was a big fan of it it is yeah i watched it last year and it was still it's still good yeah um but yeah like he's the He's the doctor in that movie, and that's the first time I probably experienced him before I knew he was a really famous actor. But then there's like Pele the Conqueror, which I know he was. I like that movie a lot. No, uh, you know, voiced Vigo um, in Ghostbusters too. Right. Um, He's in uh, Diving Bell and the Butterfly. It's one of your favorite movies. Sure. Um, but yeah, just continuously acted like all yeah. up through the two thousands. Um. Yeah, I mean, uh, recently, like, a lot of people would uh, know him from a short stint in Game of Thrones. He played the Three-Eyed Raven, which, um, pretty perfect casting. I've just seen clips of it because I never got that far in Game of Thrones. Uh, But, I mean, makes perfect sense, I think, to cast him in that role. I had no idea that that was the case. Yep. He voiced, um, what's his name, Esburn? Oh yeah, in the Elder Scrolls in the Elder Skyrim. Scrolls game, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. <clears throat> but, but uh, yeah, I mean, he's a guy that worked consistently. Um, was right. always a solid actor. Uh, he always put forth a good performance. Yeah. Now, what do you think? I, I know you talked a little bit about his acting style and what captivated you, but like he had a few roles that he played. It seemed pretty consistently. There was the menacing. There, there was the nice but menacing. That's guy. mostly. That's more later. Yeah, I that's what I'm saying. That's, that's that's later American. Yeah. But I mean, what do you think that range was early in his career, though? Like the Bergman stuff. Um. I mean, he's usually plays like a like a simple, humble man. Um. <clears throat> even in Seventh Seal, you know, his character is kind of like world weary, and you know pitiable in a lot of ways and same with you know he's just a simple father in virgin spring that gets driven to you know commit like unspeakable acts because his daughter gets murdered and just a sad like lost guy in uh winter light which is another one of my favorite performances of his even though it's brief um yeah i mean just he 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 played in every man really well and he had a definitely has a presence about him because of his his height and his almost like perfect like nordic good looks you know like chiseled Mm -hmm. features and striking eyes and that short like close cropped hair and the you know the chiseled jaw um but just always played like a very relatable 
character, I think. Like he he conveys emotion well and And do you think that's largely what it is is his um is his face, like the way he's able to convey and mannerisms, I suppose. Yeah, he like, shows he, he shows emotion well without like histrionics. Like mm-hmm. he's very good at conveying sadness and loss and grief and, you know, anger. <clears throat> so I don't know. <clears throat> I don't really think about that much. I just always enjoy the movies he's in. Yeah. And you would say if you had to go ahead and pick one, I'm assuming you would say the Virgin Spring is his best performance. I mean it's my favorite, I don't know. Yeah. Best is like really subjective, but like I love him in that movie. I mean, he's really good in like Wild Strawberries and The Magician and mm-hmm. a bunch of Bergman stuff. I I love his performance in um fucking Flash Gordon, even though it's a objectively bad movie, like it's a fun movie and I think mm-hmm. he's a really good main yeah. in it. So. And then Leland Gaunt <clears throat> playing the devil and evil yeah, he's things. Really, he's yeah, that's, that's nearly that's really perfect good for that. Too. Yeah. Another movie that's not necessarily like a great movie, but a couple good performances. Mm-hmm. Also in that Ed Harris, right? Ed Harris is Pangborn. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, yeah, I mean, um, long life, like long career. Yeah. Um, I was reading a little bit about his stage work uh, over in Sweden, and he it was a troupe that he had with a lot of uh, Berg, fellow Bergman actors and actresses, and some of the stuff that is listed that they did over there, like uh, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, mm. um, uh, Perry Yint, like things like that, that they were, uh, it's like, oh my God, I would have loved to have seen him on stage performing some of the roles that I was reading that uh, of the stage plays that they did. <clears throat> I'm always like captivated by that when I see like famous actors that I didn't know did a lot of stage work. And then the roles that they played that's just a handful of people got to see. And I can't. I can imagine like some of those roles he probably um, was extremely, you know, good in. Yeah. Um, it's a shame that those kind of things don't a lot of times get recorded for prosperity. Yeah, that is a shame. Yeah, I mean, for somebody that had such a range and was able to like just be. Yeah, I would like to see some of those stage things, mm-hmm. but I guess I don't know. Maybe yeah. look for them on YouTube and see if somebody's ever recorded yeah. them or uploaded right. them. But. Yeah, just a really great actor. Um, Some iconic roles, you know, from both, like, a classic, like, film standpoint and just also, you know, from a, I don't know what you would say, like, pop culture standpoint. You know, he played, like, Blofeld and which which Bond movie is that? You Only Live Twice or I Mm -hmm. I can't remember what Blofeld. And turned down Dr. No, I think, originally. Like, um, he he was offered that role. And turn it down. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned, you know, playing um, Father Marin in The Exorcist yeah. and Ming and yeah, yeah. He's in Dune, another one of my right. favorite. Sure. Like, weird yeah. Movies I forgot about Dune. Yeah, yeah, which we talked about last year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. Um. Like I said, a storied, you know, successful career. Um. It's a shame, but it is. All right, so back to the uh, COVID-19 list of <laughs> top five dystopian films. Unofficial um, title. <laughs> yeah. um, so let me just ask you, because it's like, I mean, it's, it, you know, at this point, it's like the, the, the elephant in the room to some degree. How are you feeling about that overall? I mean, we're, we're in the early days of all this in, in, in America, and 
Maryland currently has, I think, has 31 uh, confirmed cases yeah, right now. Where we're 26 at. the last time I looked. It's 31 a few hours right ago. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's uh, it's weird. It's still too early, I think, for me to really tell you how I feel. Like mm-hmm. right now, it feels like it could go on forever. You know, and like the it, it just feels like a different world that we're living in, and you know, you can see like just. Like, I'm, you know, not trying to go out, like, a lot, but, like, having to, like, you know, drive to my parents' house and to here tonight and going out to get food this this afternoon. It's just, you can tell that people are staying in and staying away. Yeah, from I've been it. outside the day, but um, you said it's pretty empty in a lot of places, right? Yeah, uh, roads are kind of empty. Um, you know, I know that we had talked about this last night a little bit, but, like, you know, Regal Cinemas has closed off every other seat in their auditorium, so... Yeah. <clears throat> you can't really sit next to anyone um and maybe probably not a good idea to go to the movies anyway probably not a great idea at this point uh which is really bothersome to me because there's stuff i really want to see but well it sounds like i mean i think a lot of oh yeah they, they there's so much stuff they got pushed to the summer now and i i mean i think what you're going to see a lot of places theaters i mean there are uh, theaters are just going to get closed down here soon i mean uh, uh, in some states at least um well ohio and Idaho maybe today announced that they were um closing bars and restaurants. Yeah, and no Illinois um <clears throat> is doing that that's uh takeout only at Hogan announced that- Larry Hogan, our governor, announced today that um casinos and yeah. racetracks and something else. Yeah. Um sports sports gambling places. And Pennsylvania just closed the liquor stores for Well summer? the the state stores. Right, yeah, the state store, right. But they still have delivery. So yeah. right. Um, you get so, your coronavirus brought to you with, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's still so early right now that it's, um, I don't think any, any of us can necessarily, uh, fully predict what's yeah. going to come, but I mean, it's, it's a, it's a wide range of predictions out there from experts in terms of how things could go. But, uh, yeah, this is something we could be dealing with, uh, and I th- would definitely be dealing with it through the summer and, um, to, to some degree or another, and, um, uh, we could still be dealing with it you know some remnants of it this time next year still right i mean you know it's but uh, on the other side of that like so i'm not a i hate ever changing my life for anything like (laughs) it's why i hate snow so much because i don't want to like alter right my plans or anything for external whatever sources but you look at things like there's some local restaurants that are offering um a slice of pizza and a drink to kids that come in like while the schools are closed because our schools here are closed until the end of March, at least, like, right now. Right. Um, Comcast is offering free high-speed internet for, like, low-income families so people can, like, you know, who can't get out of the house or not, like, stuck. I've seen a lot of people offering to bring, you know, supplies to elderly people or people that are immune... immune I can never say this word. Co- like, immune system compromised. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, that kind of stuff is nice to see, like, that people are kind of pulling together a little bit and trying to look out for each other and you know still maintain some moderate semblance of normalcy maybe or at least like help each other so yeah i just got i just got a report coming in that there's 32 in maryland now um but i mean just in a few days we're we passed from a thousand in the country to three thousand so it's surprising we don't have more considering our proximity to dc like you would think that we would be yeah no i uh, agreed i mean um 
and then it's like we're right across the line from University of Delaware where we're at, and they have I think six, six it was confirmed just right out now. of just out of that Newark area. So um, just West Virginia, U- there's still zero. Yeah. Um, but no, to your point, like yeah, I agree. I mean, the, we're seeing a lot of those things, and uh, we're seeing a lot of policy changes yeah. on the fly in terms of uh, making sure that. People aren't getting evicted from their houses because of what's going on, like you know, right. like where typically they would, and police police not assisting in that process, and we're seeing minor offenses in some cities get kind of tossed aside, yeah. and people not put in jail for this reason. And I, I you know, as as cynical as I normally am, <clears throat> um, all the time, it's, uh, I mean, and I mean, I both you and I like you know when we talk you know politically and socially like I'm I'm very cynical most of the time but ultimately um you know this country adapts pretty well and yeah it'll be a while but I will get through it and I'm hoping that despite how despite how bad and serious like this whole thing is um I I do think there could be some positive changes that come with sure. it um I think it's 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 interesting to see so many people like self quarantining themselves, right? Because um, I always think of our country as being full of like selfish people that are only kind of looking out for themselves, and I assume that like that's still happening in places. But sure. you know, driving around today, there was not that many people on the road, so people are taking it seriously in that respect, and that's yeah. No, I mean it's 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 funny because uh, it, it's a common joke with Gen Xers, like nothing's ever actually happened in our lives uh, whatsoever. It's like one of our defining moments is like uh growing up was the wall coming down right. or um cobain blowing his head off sure. and uh so having the to OJ deal trial. huh the oj trial oh, the oj the... trial. yeah absolutely yeah um and uh this is the first time that something you know there there was 9-11 obviously but right. um that was up in new york and it's like this is the first time to actually where the whole country is being affected by something and you're getting to see in real time people make decisions yeah and like you're getting to see how people process things like this and i've never been able to witness that before in my life so in some degree it's fascinating um despite uh yeah you know how i mean still i'm super annoyed that it's impacting (laughs) my ability to go enjoy myself but right yeah well i mean yeah i'm sure a lot of people are going to feel like that uh, not being able to do what they want to do but whatever i got a bunch of video games to play and movies to watch and My son's home now until April, so right. spend time with him. Yeah. So that'll be fine. Yeah, and I'll just be I, uh, probably, I'm assuming, going to go. I'll start teaching online, so I'll just be home. I'll be caught up on all these movies that we have for the podcast here. So yeah, whatever, I still got to work, and we're going to be super busy. Yeah. So. Man. Okay, so I'm going to jump into some movies that are not in your top five for dystopian movies and just get your general impressions of them. Some of these we might have talked about briefly before, some of them we haven't. But um, some of them you might not even agree are dystopian movies. I have no idea. So okay. um, I'll just kind of get your quick thoughts. So uh, Blade Runner. We I, we talked about the original Blade Runner on here? I feel like we have. No, nah, we just talked about Rucker Howard, right? When he Maybe. Died. I don't think we talked about the original Blade Runner just 2049 was on your top five sequels of the 2000s list yeah i mean blade runner could fit on this list pretty easily yeah i i i like blade runner a lot i think blade runner is a great movie yeah i just particularly think that two really iconic performances from ford and uh hour 
yeah. in their respective roles. Uh, Logan's Run. I mean, I like Logan's Run, but Logan's Run isn't like a great movie or anything. Not that every movie on this list is a great movie, but hmm. um, I have more. Logan's Run would be a nostalgic affection pick, and I have a another movie that's much more of a nostalgic affection pick for me. So, uh, V for Vendetta. Uh, I mean it's 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 a fine movie. I like V for Vendetta. It's well done. It's probably the best Wachowski's brothers movie next to, um, Matrix. Like I I think V for Vendetta is good. Another one that could have made Matrix the list. is another is, is another one that's on sure. the list actually too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they love dystopian, sure, like movies. Actually, I don't know your opinion on this whatsoever. What do you think about the Hunger Game movies? I thought the first Hunger Game movie was fine. Yeah, I mean, I've read the books; yeah. they're fine adaptations. Yeah. I don't think they're great movies or anything, but I think they're competently made and yeah. they follow the plots of the books well enough. So, a couple of these movies here we've talked about before, but uh, Twelve Monkeys. Yeah, 12 Monkeys, had we not have talked about it, would have been on this list. Sure. Um, same with The Clockwork Orange? Uh, yeah. Hmm. I don't know if there's... I don't know if Clockwork Orange takes place in a dystopia, though. I think it's just a... Maybe it is. I don't know. Uh, RoboCop. Um, yeah, I didn't think about RoboCop. That would have been a good choice. Could have talked about my RoboCop theme song that I, I made up. We could still talk about it. <laughs> Doesn't prohibit you from talking about it. Nobody ever wants to hear about that. <laughs> we have so many friends that like, uh, uh, like disdain that. Yeah. Whenever "Don't right. Stop Believing" comes on, because they think they're going to hear RoboCop and yeah, instead. It's true. I still love RoboCop, and it's fine. Yeah. So as a backstory, we were arguing with some people at the bar once about whether or not there's a South Detroit. Yeah, and the argument that the guy was making was that there no one calls that part of Detroit South Detroit. They just call it Detroit. And I said, but obviously there's like cardinal directions of Detroit. And I said, would you feel better if they called it Old Detroit? Like if that's what it was, like from RoboCop. And then I like on the fly <clears throat> made up a song about like within like 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 thirty minutes, an entire like parody of "Don't Stop Believing" called RoboCop and about. By Robocop, basically. Man by Robocop. Yeah. No. Yeah. It's a good song. <laughs> it's it's um, something. It's um what's your other one? Uh Don't Pull My Heart Out on Me, Indy. Right. Yeah. Don't pull my don't pull your love out on me, baby. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. no, a good another good one. Okay, the Running Man. Running Man's not a good movie. I mean, I it, it's the same category as Logan's run. At some point I want to talk about the Running Man someday, but <clears throat> it's not important. <laughs> I would just like to talk about it someday. Yeah. But fuck that movie. Maybe top like five. I, I love that movie, but also fuck that movie at the top same time. Top five King adaptations or something. Yeah, they could be on. Uh, Mad Max. We've already talked about. Well, we're saving Mad Max for something else. So oh right. Yeah, yeah. I can't put any of those movies on the list. It's the Torture Chris podcast. Right. Yeah. It's fine. Uh, Battle Royale. I didn't think about that one either. That's another really good choice. Yeah. Gattaca. I don't like Attica. Hmm. Metropolis? Uh, yeah, I'm not a huge fan of... I mean, I, I like Metropolis just fine, but I find it kind of difficult to talk about silent films. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, Idiocracy? I'm not a fan of Idiocracy. I mean, it, it's funny enough, I guess, but it's whatever. But it's a comedy. <clears throat> Escape from New York? 
What is it? Escape from New York. Um, I'm not a big fan of that movie. Nor what about Escape from <laughs> okay. Yeah, I don't like its sequel either. Total Recall. That's more sci-fi. I don't really think of. I mean, I know that a lot of these are sci-fi. I don't yeah. know. Akira. Uh, yeah. I mean, I love Akira. Mm-hmm. Akira would have been a really good choice too. Hmm. <laughs> See now you make me like, question my list. You should ask me these questions like two months ago when I. You know I'm always going to do this. You can right. just see if I, if there was anything. That, uh, Scanner Darkly. I don't know that that really rises to the level of talking about it <laughs> on a list. Okay. It's it's a fine movie. Don't get me wrong. Like that and um, Waking Life, like yeah. the two Link Letter movies that are the animated. Actually, I don't have this on here. But what about any of the adaptation, like the adaptations of um. Uh, like 1984 or anything like that. I'm not a big fan of the um, John Hurt one mm-hmm. too much. Yeah. And that's the only one that I think I really know. Okay. I think there's, yeah, I think there's two of them maybe um, that I that I know of. But. <clears throat> I mean, it's 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 an okay movie. You no, know what? Bra- they're doing Brave New World now, right? I don't know. Somebody's doing that? You know how I feel about Brave New World. I, I fucking hate that book, right. so. What, THX uh, 1138? I just didn't want to talk about it too much. Uh-huh. I mean, I think that movie's a fine movie, and I enjoy it. Uh-huh. And it actually was probably, like, seventh. It, it, it was on my top, like, 12 to 15 that I narrowed down. And actually, the last one on this list doesn't matter, because we're going to talk about it in um, another week or so. Uh, city, uh, no, no, I guess I shouldn't say that. Um, spoil the Spoilers, right. Yeah. yeah. But, um, <clears throat> so I guess that doesn't matter. But I also there, thought about Soiling Green. Oh right, yeah, Soiling Green. Green yeah, yeah. To make I forgot about Soiling Green and yeah. Westworld as well. Right, um, I like all those. Like that, the seventies. Um, no, no blade of grass is another one I thought of. I don't know um, that movie. What is that? It's a. Uh, we've poisoned the world with chemicals, and it's coming to an end. Like early seventies British, like impending apocalypse, Man. type movie. Yeah. It's decent. It's just it's it's not like. It's not great. It's just okay. Some people love that movie, but I just think it's just fine. And then I guess there's like, yeah, I don't know. Do you consider zombie movies like dystopian in some way? Nah. No. Okay. I think there's a distinction between apocalyptic and post-apocalyptic and dystopian. Like dystopian okay. movies, and this doesn't stand true for one of the movies on this list. In dystopian movies, like society still functions. It just functions at the expense of the individual. Whereas right. like, in a lot of those movies, like Mad Max and, you know, the Road Warrior series. And, right. Um, any of the zombie movies, society's falling apart. Like, Soiling Green is a dystopia, you know, because they're eating people. Mm-hmm. But society's still functioning by them eating people. Snowpiercer's right. another good example of a mm-hmm. dystopian movie. Just the dystopia is, like, on a train as opposed to, you know. Right. Yeah. But, like, Mad Max is an apocalyptic movie. Yeah. The first one too. It's it's pre apocalypse. It's like okay. society's falling apart. Yeah. Okay, I, I I see this thing. It's not right functioning there. anymore because like the sure. cops can't even keep order and yeah. gangs are like ruling the. You know, I, I got you. The night riders ruling the the roads. Okay. Uh, anything else you want to say before we get started? No, I mean it's an enjoyable list to watch. Yeah. Um, after you said some of those, I think there were some other things that could have been included that would have been good. Um, Akira and RoboCop particularly like 
I I think would have been nice to talk about, but it was just it was it was a good list to make. Like yeah. I really enjoyed it. I I think well. I don't know about this first one, but um, <clears throat> I, I I enjoyed watching these movies on the on, the, on this list. So, your number five movie is 1971's The Omega Man. Yeah, it's directed by Boris Segal. It stars Charlton Heston, Anthony Zerbe, and Rosalind Cash. Has a 65 percent from critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 53 percent from audiences. You want to tell us a little bit about the movie and what you like about it so much? Uh, second adaptation of Richard Matheson's I Am Legend. <clears throat> um, preceded by Vincent Price's Last Man on Earth, um, which is a torturous movie. It's like one of the most boring movies ever. And then followed decades later by Will Smith's I Am Legend. Um, follows, it's, like, it's, it's a very loose adaptation, I should say that as well, because it changes a lot from the source material. But um, Heston plays Neville, Richard Neville, who's... um he believes the last surviving human um from a plague that basically has mutated people into being these like nocturnal like mutants basically um spends his days driving around los angeles and his nights like hiding and basically like holding out from attacks from these mutant groups um eventually meets a woman who's another survivor but who's susceptible to the virus so he had found a, he was a doctor and he had found a cure for himself a serum that basically like rendered him immune to the virus um falls in love with her tries to you know get the cure her and her brother like make them immune but eventually gets kidnapped by the um uh the family these albino mutants that are like tracking him um and in the end he dies like it's a classic i don't know whatever like feel bad you know 70s horror movie ending right horror sci-fi i would say like it's a mix of the two yeah um really like i i, I really th this is the nostalgia pick from this list even though i like all five movies a lot and i've i like all five movies of varying degrees because i don't like four like a lot but i think four is is, is good um, I don't know if this is like a good movie at all. Like it's probably not a good movie, but I just love watching it. Like I like I like Charlton Heston in it. I like um Matthias a lot, like the head of the family. Mm -hmm. Um it's got a lot of really like overwrought dialogue, but it still is really good dialogue. Like I like the whole like you know, like um user of the wheel, creature of the wheel thing, like the mm. you know that man is like basically these luddites are saying that like man ruined his self on technology and we need to like you know forego the oh shit what's the line it's like the lord of the engines the new guy i don't, I, I can't remember like there's there's some really good dialogue that matthias says like when he's like preaching at neville um telling his family like you know does he have the marks can you see them it's like he has like normal eyes and all their eyes are like albino. Um, I mean, again, not like a classic of cinema, but it's a really fun movie, I think, to watch. Maybe not fun for you because I don't think you liked it very much, but. No, I didn't. I mean, it was fine. I, I, I'm not a big sci fi fan in the first place, if we're being honest, a lot right. of times. Um, although I enjoyed your sci fi lists like last year, the two different ones you created, like a lot of those movies, but. 
I um but like especially this kind of stuff from the seventies is tough for me and this is like early seventies, so it's 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 even a little bit more different. Yeah. It has a very British feel to the whole thing. I don't know where this was filmed at or like I think it was filmed in LA. Was it? Or on in California, I'm pretty yeah, sure. Yeah. It, it just had a very British feel to it, which like like really old Doctor Who type things like yeah, I to can me. See that. And um while I liked, you know, some of the actors that played Who in that time period, like just I don't know, it just makes me feel weird like looking at like the sets and stuff um it's kind of a turn off and yeah the dialogue's like really uh, you're right it's overwrought is, it is. Is, is 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 the kind way of like saying uh, saying that um but yeah like i mean I, I and i'm just not a fan of charlton heston really um that's interesting so i I don't know. I mean, I I think there's better actors, but I think Charlton Heston is. Uh, it's not that he's terrible. It's just he's he's a ham. He's he's he always. Is, it's, he's, he's you know what he himself. is. He's Joe Biden. Yeah, that's fine. I'm yeah. okay with it. Like that, that that's actually what he reminds me of. Now that I think about it, is like that just that like pearly white smile. It's it's right. it's Woody Harrelson doing Joe Biden. <laughs> right. Like that's what Charlton Heston is. You know, but and Hes- I like Heston when he's younger, like in some noirs and stuff like that. Right. Like. Because it's a different time period, but by the time you get to seventy one, he feels anachronistic. I mean, he like found his niche as this like survivor type, you know. Sure. Whatever. I I can't remember. I'm not what. hating on the guy. It's just I'm just not yeah. a fan. Like it, you know. I like I said, I liked him. Um, uh, like a touch of evil and stuff like that. Like sure. I thought he worked really well. I mean, I I like the visual aesthetic of this movie, and I like. Hmm. Charlton Heston's an asshole in it, you know, like Neville's an asshole, but he's the last dude on earth. Like, I don't know. I, I really, I was in love with Richard Matheson when I was young. Like, I loved his short stories, and he wrote a lot of Twilight Zone stuff. I like the short story this is based off of. Yeah, because it's fantastic. Yeah. Um, And also, there's the connection to White Zombie, because I really, um, there's i am legend the song is written about that like this movie mm-hmm. um and then there's a song in the second white zombie album that uses samples from this movie um creature of the wheel is actually what it's called mm-hmm. um so to me there was like a whole lot of things that like came together when i saw this movie for the first time that made me like really love it even though it's not a good adaptation of mm-hmm. the during my research i found out that this was the first interracial kiss that's interesting. On, yeah, you um, told me that. I had, film. had no idea. Yeah, which is it's just really fascinating. I was thinking it was 74, but it's 71. But still, you know, it's like nine years before I was born. You know? Right. What was what that? Is it five years for Six. you? Six. Six years for mm-hmm. you? Like, that? yeah, like, that's crazy. Like, that, that it took that long for an interracial yeah. kiss. Um, it's just impressive how far we've come, like, even though we still have a ways to go, I think, to truly be, like, an all-inclusive and accepting culture, like, yeah that we've come that far yeah and that, yeah i mean it's it feels like this is coming up a lot because we were just talking about free being the bean the other week and there was right. a something before that that we ended up having a similar conversation of just how how quickly things have changed yeah. um for the positive uh overall like in terms of film and representation Bingo long maybe or 110th street uh, i can't something, remember. yeah something like that um so Howard Thompson, the New York Times, he, he calls the first third of the movie, he says it felt uncertain. He says the film is best in its middle third when Heston discovers and protects a group of young people in hiding, including a cheerfully cynical girl played by Rosalind Cash who perks up the whole thing. I agree with that. Peppered with some sharp, even amusing dialogue, the story temporarily shells the heavy allegory and slips into good slam-bang suspense. However, it doesn't last, and the climax 
is as florid and phony as it can be, like a tired Western with Dracula and company thundering after Hopalong Heston. They nail him down quite literally in an embarrassing fade-out, carefully suggesting a crucifixion. If, the only pic- if only the picture had sustained the brisk vigor introduced by Miss Cash in the middle third. Um, how do you see it as a kind of like a suspense action movie? Do you think, I mean, do you, do you think it works in that level? I mean, as well as a lot of other things. I, Again, like these movies, a lot of the ones you listed when you asked me, like, you know, the like Logan's Run and Soiling Green, and there's plenty of other stuff that could have like filled this, this, this particular spot. Do you mean when you say this spot, you mean like you're never gonna find a spot? Right, yeah, you're gonna spot. I mean, like, I forgive a lot of its inadequacies just because it's entertaining to me and because I have like affection for it. Mm -hmm. Like, I I understand that criticism. I mean, right, like, Charlton Heston is the martyr at the end. I mean, it's it's just it's silly, kind of, you know, but it also I think is an appropriate ending to the movie. Like this guy that he is the he he's he's a dinosaur, you know, he doesn't belong in this world anymore and <clears throat> Right. These people have like built a society that he's trying to destroy just because it's not his society. I mean it kind of is like fitting that they kill him. Yeah. Like he's the sacrifice to, you know, the new gods of the world or whatever. And I think that's that's also like Matheson's kind of point. In the novella, so I don't know. Okay. All right. So number four on your list, mm. Dark City from 1998. Right. It's directed by Alex Proas. Pro- Proas, I think. Proas. Um, so. It stars Rufus Sewell, Kiefer Sutherland, Jennifer mm. Conley, William Hurt, Richard O'Brien. Has a 76 from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and 85 percent from audiences. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the movie and what you like about it. Um. Rufus Sewell and his lazy eye are like these. Uh, Poor Rufus Sewell. Right. Whatever. Rufus Sewell's done just fine for himself. <laughs> um, he's the he's the only good part, honestly. Well, that's not completely true, but mostly true of that damn um, show that I watched and can never remember the name of on Amazon. Yeah. Man, the High Castle. Man, uh, right. Yeah, I forgot he was. Rufus Sewell was the best part of that thing. Okay, so. Uh, plays John, I can't remember his last name, this semi-amnesiac who's kind of, like, lost in this steampunky, like, retro 50s-style city. Um, over the course of the first part of the movie, realizes that there's something else going on, like, there's this kind of conspiracy involving these pale, bald men in trench coats and fedoras. Um, that are kind of controlling and manipulating the city. Uh, sort of a precursor and idea to like the Matrix kind of where he's, um, they tune the city every night. Um, they're able to like manipulate and change like the perception and people's lives and their memories with the aid of, uh, the Kiefer Sutherland character who's a doctor. Um, and Rufus Sewell is also able to use that same power to, like, manipulate the reality and, like, change things. And he's actually much more powerful at doing it than the rest of them are. Um, so it's more or less a movie about memory and its place in your life and 
how your perception changed, like alters your reality, like your present reality, like your perception of the past. Um, and set against like a steampunky sci-fi, you know, dark future style, like backdrop. Um, you got some really good performances in it. Like I think Sewell's good in it. I think Richard O'Brien is fantastic as mm-hmm. uh, Mr. Hand or whatever his name is. Um, I think he for Sutherland's a little weird in it. Like it's a very, it feels very forced where Kiefer Sutherland, Kiefer Sutherland either hits a role like perfectly or misses a role by a little bit, but enough where like you still feel like you're not connecting with that character. And I feel like that's how he is here. He's just too. Kiefer Sutherland is trying to play the Stanley role from Fire Walk with me as like through the lens of like the um what the what's the like the rabbit in alice in wonderland oh like it's i i actually felt it was more of like a renfeld style performance like a mm. like the like, ratty i can see that servant maybe that's like, what i'm thinking of when i talk about the like rabbit from alice in wonderland it's kind of like rodent yeah like, yeah exactly yeah the rodent but, it, but like it, servant of the, the way he speaks masters. is very much like the stanley kind yeah. of uh, yeah mm-hmm. like just, yeah yeah um, it's, it's very, it very much feels like a nineties movie, but it's got some really good special effects to it. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea of the world where reality and time is ma- manipulated in such a way that every single day is its own, like separate cosmos from like everything else. And that one day this family of paupers can be the family, like the wealthiest family the next day. Um, and the idea of, you know, like that's been touched on in a lot of other movies and the matrix, I think does it a little more successfully, um, you know, of like a shadowy cabal, like kind of manipulating those things behind the scenes where, you know, you're too focused on your, the minutia of your life to realize that like everything about your life is a lie. Um, and it's well done to a point. Like, I think the. I think the direction is a little off the mark sometimes. Um, and I like, I like Proyas like well enough. Um, we talked about him on the quick cage podcast with, uh, knowing cause he directed that. Right. Um, and the abysmally terrible gods of Egypt movie. Mm. Um, but he has a really good eye for like interesting visuals. Like he knows how to frame a scene and he knows how to make something look like visually compelling. Um, he, he has a really good eye, or maybe, I don't know if he works with the same cinematographer or not. I think he has a really good eye for framing. Yeah. Um, you know how somebody can have, like, a really, uh, like, a decent PowerPoint slide, and they use too many fades and right. um, transitions? It's like, that's how I feel with him sometimes. It's like, he has, like, this this way of framing, and then he'll make a camera movement that just fucks the entire shot up. Yes. Or because it's like the early days of cgi and mind you i think that the cgi in this movie is very subtle and very effectively used Mm -hmm. but you still feel it yep like it's it's they're not nearly at the point yet where it's a seamless blend and it kind of feels like it pushes you out of the yes um the movie at times when they use it but i think some of the stuff's really inventive it's like when i was watching it i was thinking of um oh man my mind shot today 
what's the um nolan movie that i'm thinking inception inception right there there's stuff like an inception that like it feels like this this certainly inspired some of sure. that stuff except this is much more subtle than inception just like bombast oh, sure sure with their stuff yeah and I, I actually really enjoy um the visual representation of him tuning like him using his mental powers mm-hmm. with like the just kind of like the ethereal bubble like coming out of his head like i really like that as mm-hmm. a representation it, it feels really comic booky and like a good sure. example of like power but i mean but it's it, it's a good movie it's a it's been a couple weeks since i watched it now i know that there was the inception thing and then you mentioned the matrix stuff yeah um, it felt like there's a couple other things that i felt when i watch it it's like man this having not watched this since like probably 1998 or whatever 99 um which is crazy that's 20 years now but it just feels like there was other movies that like I was sitting there and I was thinking like, oh, this actually I think inspired some of that too, probably in this movie that came later. I felt the same way too. I mean, it's got it's because it's that like like sepia tone, like washed out. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to describe it, like claustrophobic, you know, yeah. like dismal future. Mm-hmm. It sort of um, Looper has parts that feel mm-hmm. like that. Um, Man, I know there's other stuff. Yeah, there is. Because there was something very specifically I was thinking of when it comes to like the noir type stuff um, in it. That, and I can't think of what I'm thinking of. But anyway, but yeah, I, I think like the, 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 the setting of this movie is really unique. And I think it's in some ways just worth watching just for that kind of like um, that sci-fi noir aspect of it. Right. Um, in terms of its look. And like I said, it's not the greatest movie in the world uh, but it's 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 a fine movie and i think it's um if you're a sci-fi fan you right. haven't seen it then it's definitely I, worth watching but. i found it to be kind of pretentious when i first saw it and i saw this like the night before it opened mm-hmm. like in wide release in the theater right because we stayed after and watched it and i really i hadn't seen it except for maybe a couple of scenes since then and i actually enjoyed watching it this time i, did too. I was, I was yep. pretty engaged and yeah. i thought it was a decent movie and as of March of oh the other thing they oh. said to you too about it was um, William Hurt is like off putting in it sometimes like his performance is very and I think that's just him like he never feels human to me in any role and sometimes that really works like something like um, History of Violence like he pulls that off really well but just weird in this one and maybe that's on purpose like the character that he's playing yeah he just feels off i, I agree with you i had never thought of it um he does feel off in this and i'm somebody who really likes william hurt a lot yeah um but uh yeah like he definitely um is yeah. off in this so thinking about the william hurt thing too like one of the other performances in the movie that just feels kind of like phoned in and i'm i'm sort of thinking now that maybe proyas like did this on purpose because the whole just to the movie is that these people are like kind of sleepwalking through life is um Connolly's performance is very exactly the question I was going to ask you very um muted and like almost drugged and there's a lot of times where like and I I don't know that Jennifer Connolly's like a great actress but Jennifer Jennifer Connolly's like a good actress in a lot of movies and it really feels phoned in in a lot of this and I guess maybe maybe that was on purpose by him like having these people because really the only intensity comes from Sewell, uh, Sutherland, and um, the Richard O'Brien characters. Mm-hmm. And they're the ones that are like, you know, the driving force that kind of understand what's happening in the city and are able to like interact with it. And maybe everybody else is supposed to feel. And the guy that um, 
the former detective that sort of figured out that nothing's real. I can't right. Remember, yeah, I can't yeah. remember his name. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. He's a good character actor. I can't remember his name either. Yeah. Um, here, here's my thing about Conley. I think is I, I sit there and think that Conley. This happens far too often with her, where she disappears in movies. And so I'm not sure if it's a director directorial choice or not. I think this is. I think she just has a a tendency to almost underact Maybe. at times, and she disappears. Like you think about roles she's had in movies. With, kind of like this like the the hawk movie that she was in i think she just like disappeared oh, i forgot it. she was even in that right exactly that's what i'm saying it's like there's roles that that happens with her um i don't know i'm it, it just feels like there's just a blank slate and i i and i get what you're saying but i'm, I'm not sure if that was her or if that was a choice i mean you think it's about stuff like requiem or um labyrinth or i mean there's plenty mm. of stuff that she's in that yeah she's really good in and some stuff that she's not. I mean, for me, it feels more like. So this came out after. She's in some stuff where she has some notoriety, especially because like she has a nude scene in Inventing the Abbots. So maybe this was more like some kind of stunt casting in a way, mm-hmm. like just to get like the. Like super attractive, hot young actress. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe if she's not invested in a role, she just doesn't really like put her all into it or maybe something. i don't know i was looking at the criticism that i found for this movie it's over in gleberman which makes me not want to read it but right. it, it actually um it actually jives a little bit with what we're saying like the criticism is um to some degree he's um extra with it because he's over in gleberman right but it actually jives so i don't really think it's worth going into i um, mean one of the things with proyas and it's the reason why he kind of sort of just kind of like fallen off is that He's kind of like the Wachowskis in the sense that he's got great ideas and a really good, it's like Lucio Fulci. Like, it's a person that understands, or Argento is another good example of this. Somebody that has a great grasp of how to visually represent something occurring on film, but lacks the ability to meld a narrative to that, to those visuals. Like, the narrative falls to the wayside, you know, in deference to making something that looks fantastic. Because you look at scenes where, like, the fight in in this movie, the fight where um, Sewell first, like, kind of realizes his powers and is able to, like, fight the, um, uh, what do they call them? I can't remember what they call the dudes in the trench coats, but, like, able to fight him off and it, like, destroys the ground underneath him and, like, saves himself and makes the like actually kills one of them with the waving hand of the billboard or whatever that scene is incredibly well filmed it's really tense it's really engaging and then there's other scenes where dialogue is being done that are framed really well they're lit really well the um the set design is amazing but it all just kind of falls flat and i think maybe that's his problem i don't know yeah Gleberman's last line is it's so busy trying to blow your mind it never reveals a mind of its own and no, I that's can, silly it, it's a silly way of phrasing it right. but I, I think to some degree he's trying to he's he's, he's well, it's very he's, forward thinking in a lot of ways no absolutely yeah, yeah. It just it just yeah. kind of it, it just falls short of being great 
Yeah, I, I think I, it agree. Would, I, I, I think that had maybe had a better script and the performances had been a little more like nuanced and not just like wooden. Yeah. Especially for the supporting actors that you'd be talking about this movie as like one of the great sci-fi movies of the last century. And instead it's like just more of a footnote that people who are really into sci-fi or who are really into the visuals, you know, like, I mean, what's that guy's name? Tarsim or whatever. Like he made that movie sell and it's really similar. Like cell is, amazing visually but there's like no substance to it Mm -hmm. and this has a little more substance than that but it's similar in the sense that like what is there ultimately you know like it's just kind of like a very very cookie cutter story that the wachowskis explore much better in the matrix you know a year later or whatever so yeah but i mean still worth watching and still like has some really cool ideas and as a a dystopian society is a pretty neat, um, you know, like I like concept and visually the execution is pretty cool. So, right. and it's free to watch on what voodoo, right? Voodoo. Now. Yep. So mm-hmm. if you don't mind, if you don't mind commercials and you have like an hour and 45 minutes to kill plus 40 minutes of commercials, it felt like, but you know, you should sit down and watch it. Yeah. I think you're pretty good at giving me those Instagram, uh, clips <laughs> anymore. All right. <clears throat> right. Because I'm, I'm promoting the hell out of this episode. That's now. what I'm here like, for. We we got we got COVID nineteen like you know propping up this episode for right. advertising. I, I, I think there's some good coasters for it too. So yeah, no, absolutely. All right. So number three on your list is going back much further here. Um, in 1965, it is Jean Luc Godard's Alphaville, starring Eddie Constantine, Anna Karina, and Akeem Tomaroff. It is a 91% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and 81% from audiences. You want to tell us a little bit about the movie and what you like about it? Let so me much? say that, first of all, I'm really surprised that there's 9% of critics that have a negative negative impression to this movie. And one of the most famous ones of the period, which we'll get to. And that's weird. Yeah. Um, Very Orwellian. Uh, I mean, it's kind of... Eddie Constantine plays um, Lemmy Caution, one of the greatest names in film history, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a private investigator slash operative from the Outlands who's going into Alphaville, um, basically to to bring it down, like to destroy the authoritarian computer that controls Alphaville. Um, Alphaville is a quote-unquote utopian society where um, emotion has been outlawed um, to the point where there's like, sort of bibles on the nightstands of like words you're not allowed to use because they are too they show too much emotion and like the citizens of alphaville don't know concepts like love and compassion whatever um caution is going in to find the scientists that created the computer um and destroy the computer itself um over the course of the time that he's there he falls in love with um the scientist's daughter, played by uh, Anna Anna Karina, Karina, however you say her name, um, and they eventually like he brings down the computer by basically it's like quoting poetry to it. Um, visually, one of the most I think influential films of the time period. Um, very striking, black and white, very effective use of. 
glass and steel and concrete to create like using like actual buildings and real world locations to create a feeling of futurism while not appearing to be like it's like near future dystopia as opposed to like traditional sci-fi that's very like stylized i mean this is you know godard just being like a master of like the way that he frames things the way that he films things and his eye for capturing you know the the modernism of i don't know things like machines and um lights and setting and um and because there was so much new architecture in france from what i read around that time he was able to film in certain parts of the city sure that looked more futuristic right. in some ways um uh let me caution um constantine's character is a uh, a really good mixture of parody and homage to the traditional like american gumshoe private detective you know including like trench coat fedora hangdog expression like just he kind of feels i don't know maybe like a like a latter-day sam spade sort of in the way that like he carries himself in the way that he absolutely <clears throat> constantine it actually has played similar roles but he actually played lemmy caution in other movies because lemmy caution was it was a pulp novelist from britain named peter cheney and he created the Lemmy Caution character, and it was all set around the 40s and 50s, uh, the Lemmy Caution novels. And uh, it started out, the script for this, I think started out as kind of a Lemmy Caution movie in order to get um, like financing in some way. And they just kept the name Lemmy Caution, even though they changed, like, Godard basically got money from people and then used the money to just create whatever the hell he wanted to create. Um, and they let, kept the name Lemmy Caution, which I thought was really just funny and cool. Yeah, that's interesting. I honestly had no idea that he ever... I've never seen any of the other movies. Yeah, I, I, I just know about them. Um, I've, I've actually never seen them. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a... In terms of, like, the dystopian angle of it, you know, it's a technological dictatorship, basically, um, based on this, you know, computer, like, controlling people to divest themselves of their humanity um and it's brought down you know by his introduction of like abject humanity i guess into the equation um it's it was difficult when i was like five and four were easy you know once once i had like given you the list but the top three were difficult because like i really love all three of those movies and alphaville is a movie that i've man like i've seen i don't know a, a number of times um a movie i saw a very long time ago was like a teenager and something that like i loved when i first saw it um i think it's a a great example of how masterful godard was as a director um especially during that time period uh you know famously inspired the cranberries linger video mm -hmm. um just in terms of like it's you know it's striking like black and white visual style it's very very crisp black and white like a lot of times in good art movies there's kind of a <clears throat> like a haziness to it like it feels almost like not dreamlike isn't the right word because that's not really good art's thing but like there's almost like a 
tongue-in-cheek whimsy to his films and like this film is very direct and very crisp and very i don't know i mean there's a lot of pretension to it but it's not like pretension in a negative way it's just very high-minded ideals that Godard is looking at and you know taking like this sci-fi Orwellian setting and kind of crafting his own I don't know like stylized ideological like version of that and oh it's 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 a great movie um great performance by Anna Anna Karina um who I think is like one of the best actresses of the 60s one of my favorites anyway 60s and 70s and like one of the most striking women like in film ever maybe like she's amazing to watch yeah i had never seen this before but um which is surprising like uh given how much i like noir like old noir but um yeah this was i was really taken with this movie particularly in the first half a little less in the second half but it was still a solid movie overall um even where I thought like some of the suspense kind of came to a halt in the second half yeah. of the movie and slowed down a little bit, but um, the it was just the filmmaking of this and like the way it was like the the mise en scene like um and cinematography is really striking in this movie. Some of the uh, the one I've been raving about for weeks since we first mentioned uh, since you first had me watch this was. Uh, there's a scene that tr- a tracking shot that starts in the lobby with Lemmy Caution coming oh, yeah, into the, the hotel and the right. and the girl uh, walking him through and it, they go up the elevators and because the elevators were see through they actually were able to track with two elevators next to each other up the elevator with him and then still track him coming down the hallway once they got to the correct floor into the room and it's an amazing yeah. shot of him just like lighting up a cigarette and like listening to her talk and not saying a damn word but that haggard hangdog right you know wary expression um you know and it's 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 a great um great shot like the that he executes and he has a number of those type of things throughout this and it's a real um you know, as not being very experienced with Godard at all, uh, it's a real marvel of filmmaking, I think, in a yeah, lot of ways. He's he's interesting because, like, and this is true in a lot of Godard movies, like, he's more interested in less so the overall plot and, like, narrative of the movie and more how do people interact with each other. And so I can see from, like, a filmmaking standpoint how that first part of the movie where it's like building towards whatever that inevitable confrontation, like you're more invested in. And then Godard becomes more interested in, I don't know, like that human aspect of everything. And so it becomes less like of a traditional noir, more of like, honestly, like a French new wave movie, which you right. know, it's definitely what it is, but really, um, really influential, uh, definitely holds up well like today and is i think an an amazing movie i think it's a marvel of like filmmaking and i think it's a really important film that i feel like a lot of people should see it's on the criterion channel now so yeah it is so bosley crother of the new york times says that the movie it begins as a fast-moving prank that combines the amusing agitations of a character on the order of James Bond and the highly pictorial fascinations of a slick sci-fi mystery, and it makes for some brisk satiric mischief when it is zipping along in this vein. 
Then halfway through, it swings abruptly into a solemn allegorical account of this suddenly sobered fellow with a weird computer-controlled society, and the whole thing becomes a tedious tussle with intellectual banalities. It is lively so long as Lemmy Caution, the secret agent chap who is borrowed from the popular series of cheap French detective novels, is moving with eagle-eyed alertness into the mysterious city of Alphaville, casing its robot-like people and strangely compliant minds in its sleek hotel. Mr. Goddard has set us up nicely for an onward sweep and entertaining rush of futuristic melodramatics and a modernized Wellsian things to come. But when he goes into low gear, he... <clears throat> But then he goes into low gear. He lets Lemmy Caution get involved with a slow-eyed, slow-witted maiden who doesn't know the meaning of the word love and who seems to be reasonably contented with the technological society of Alphaville. And from here on, he leads Mr. Caution and the viewer on a slow and painful tour of a complexly automated community that is devoid of conscience and poetry. Mr. Gard is a great one for making shock impressions with vivid images, and he relies on this technique for achieving the main thematic effects of this film. But the conclusion that love, good old love, conquers all, is a curiously disappointing finish for such an initially promising film. <clears throat> I mean, I guess I understand that criticism. I don't, <clears throat> I don't necessarily agree with it. I don't know. I don't know. I really don't have. Just you can see where he's coming from. Like, yeah, but like, don't agree. It's just it's it, it's not for everyone. Like I yeah. wouldn't say that like every person needs to watch Alphaville, and I think there's plenty of people that would probably feel, well, not that like maybe not be able to express it like that in such an articulate manner would like kind of feel the same way, like come away from it like that. You know, I mean, ultimately it's her realizing that she loves him that kind of destroys, you know, sure. alpha 60 or whatever. So sure. I don't know. Mm. Um, it like, so uh, I, I, I love good art and a lot, probably one of my five favorite directors like ever. But I don't ever tell people, like, hey, you need to go watch, you know, Breathless, or you need to go watch fucking, um, I don't know, like, Masculine Feminine or something, you know, because I just don't think it's for everybody. I think that, I think he's amazing, but I think he's very, it's very specific, like, what you have to appreciate to enjoy his movies, and, like, maybe it's just not for that dude, you know? Right, yeah. The only thing I took away from this movie in terms of um, beyond just like the filmmaking and that I thought it was a good movie overall is I found myself as sometimes, this says a lot about me, I guess, sympathizing with like the computer. Like in the way like the, it, it was making really good arguments <laughs> sometimes. I didn't agree with it in the end, but I found myself right. like thinking like, yeah, like right on. <laughs> That's and really and it disturbed me a little bit, like, uh, after the fact when I realized, like, I was kind of, like, wasn't rooting for the computer, but I was, um, I understood where it was coming from. I mean, that's like, any great villain, right? Like, I guess so, yeah, right, maybe, yeah. Measure of relatability, or else just a I'll. That's a very optimistic, that's an optimistic viewpoint, I'll take that one and right. just move on. Any final thoughts on this? No, like, again, I, I, I think it's a masterpiece. Yeah. <clears throat> um... To me, it doesn't, it's not one of my favorite, there's many of his other films that I enjoy more than this, but I definitely, like, always enjoy watching it, and I think it's a brilliantly filmed, um, 
unique look at something that most directors of the time period and especially you know the french new wave weren't focusing on things like sci-fi and i think it's a pretty interesting take on it by a you know a master of of cinema all right okay so number two on your list is the most recent movie that you have it is 2006's children of men directed by alfonso Cuarón. it stars clive owen michael kane julianne moore um chitawell igo4 it has a 92 percent on Rotten Tomatoes from critics and 85% from audiences. You want to tell us a little bit about the movie and what you like about it so much? Uh, so it takes place in what is now like the near future um, in Britain in a society where um, the populace has been rendered infertile. Uh, the last child was born 18 years before and no other children have been born since. Um Focuses on uh, the Clive Owen character, uh, Theo, who's kind of just like this, I don't know, disaffected, like morose working man who just kind of drinks himself into oblivion. Um, it's set on a backdrop where immigrants are being, illegal immigrants are being herded together and deported from Britain. Um, the rest of the world, it's alluded to that the rest of the world's kind of fallen into chaos and has been like mostly destroyed. Um, Theo is contacted by his uh, ex-wife, uh, the Julianne Moore character, who wants him to secure papers to get this girl to um, be able to pass through like the different areas of Britain and get to the coast so she can get on a boat. Um, and then you learn that the girl, uh, Key, is pregnant um, with the first baby in, you know, two two decades um and then it becomes kind of a almost more like a um heist not heist but like action thriller to get her help her escape and get you know onto the boat so she can be saved um some really brilliant performances like i think um i think owen is is really good in it um i think julianne moore does a good job in her limited role because she's not in very long. Um, Michael Caine is amazing as uh, Theo's older friend, uh, former journalist who's now like a renegade, you know, pot dealer, basically. Um, really kind of like eerily prescient and scary. Um, so this is 2006. This is a couple years before, you know, we're talking about the COVID, <clears throat> the coronavirus thing now, but... This is two years before the H1N1 um, swine flu, <clears throat> and they actually make mention in the movie that um, Theo and uh, uh, Julian, who's the, um, uh, what's her name's character, Julianne Moore's character, mm -hmm. um, their son died from a plague that happened in 2008, and like that's like right when the swine flu was happening, so right. that's like eerily prescient, and you know the hatred for illegal immigrants feels like today and just kind of the the propaganda that you see from the government and kind of the fierce nationalism kind of rings eerily close to the modern day um it's got a lot of high-minded ideals and it sort of strays kind of just like uses them when it needs to use them at times and then also like just strays into straight 
almost action for long periods of time. Um, but I never think that it loses the thread of the idea that, you know, life is worth saving even in like the worst environments and that we have to protect like the youth and still try to still be optimistic and still try and save innocence, um, when we find it. Um, I know it's just a really good movie. Very, uh, very impactful to me when I first saw it, um, Watching it recently, you know, I still found it to be impactful and well done. Um, and again, like, you know, makes you a little uncomfortable just because of how <clears throat> sort of close to home it hits. You know, it takes place in 2027, so it's only seven years from now. But, you know, 14 years after, 15 years after the movie was filmed, like, you're kind of, you, you see a lot of those things. Yeah. Not to the, like, huge sure extreme of dystopia that, you know, is presented here, but maybe kind of close in like some ways like the refugees being caged and herded and sort of like treated like animals and yeah which i was saying earlier to me that was like a nightmare scenario considering this is not long after the start of homeland security in this country right and i think it's like the imagination of where that could go potentially at the time and it didn't seem quite as it seemed a little far-fetched at the time like it, was, it seemed like a nightmare version of what could happen right. and then now we're living in 2020 where you know not a year and a, a year year and a half ago it's like we had refugees in cages we still do i mean right we're, we're living that nightmare version. right exactly so it's like you have that going on i also thought some of the socio-political aspects were a lot more uh a lot more a lot we were a lot closer to that now than so it's like the extremism of julianne moore's group that they end up like having her killed because she was too moderate right and it's like we we see those kind of things i thought that the um the underclass of that society like marching and you know trying to basically stage a coup right feels much like in some countries feels much more uh you know if it's not happening, it's, it's, it's closer to those situations in some countries in the world. I, so yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, it's a really interesting film and it struck me a lot more this time, uh, than it did the first time, even though I liked the movie the first time, it struck me a lot more this time. And that's even before everything started with Corona. I mean, and then even more so. So, but yeah, the uh, filmmaking in this though is like I think that's the thing that everybody remembers of the time right. period, especially that one damn shot that everybody talks about—that brilliant shot of them in the car near the beginning, where they everybody comes out of the woods on them, oh, and yeah, the yeah, reverse yeah. shot, and it's like all one take. <clears throat> yeah, uh, that's that's really well done. Yeah, and there's a few shots like that where there's these kind of like tracking shots that are all done in one take that are just really breathtaking and amazingly done and. Um, again, a real achievement, I think, in that movie. I agree with that. I mean, Quran is a pretty, pretty talented filmmaker. Um, even the stuff that he's done that I'm not a huge fan of, like Prisoner of Azkaban specifically, like you still can see his distinct visual style in it. Um, he definitely does a good job of capturing just like that the true what i consider the true feel of like a dystopian society where there's still all the trappings of like what we consider to be real society but they're just like falling into disrepair and slightly off and they make you uncomfortable to look at 
um, the dirtiness and the neglect and the just general <clears throat> lack of humanity. Um, but yeah, like I, I don't know. I, I really enjoy it. I think it's a really powerful movie from start to finish. Um, I particularly find the last like 20 minutes to be, you know, uh, emotionally affecting. Um, and it gives you a sense of hope at the end, which is nice, like that, you know, humanity can still prevail, which not all movies like this, you know, can do. Particularly like the number one movie on the list, which definitely doesn't do that, but. Right. No, not at all. Um, okay, I guess I'll get into this. So Andrew Saris from The Observer overseas said that if I had compi- if I'd seen this before I compiled my movies other people liked and I didn't for 2006, it would have been a strong contender. I just don't get it, which is to say that many reviewers took it very seriously as a commentary on our times to say nothing of our dismal future, whereas by the time it was over, I felt I could approach it only as pure farce. The world created by the director and his collaborators, dystopia, smishmopia, as I'd like to say, is so laughably unbelievable even a science fiction fantasy that I find it hard to write about with a straight face. Yet what I find particularly irksome about it is its pseudo-humanism and its calculating political correctness. Clearly, compelling characterization isn't going to be one of the film's priorities, despite no less than five writing credits. Mr. Owen, for example, never had a part as colorless and as hapless as he has here. The emphasis throughout is on mise-en-scene over narrative. In this respect, uh... Uh, Lubzicki's uh, virtuoso single-take cinematography dazzles the eye, but demeans the actors as it thrusts them into one grotesquely angular composition after another, just to demonstrate how particularly shattered the city cityscape has become. After a while, one stops caring what the characters are saying, once they can stop dodging bullets long enough to engage in conversation. About the only characters in which whom Theo can speak freely are his old girlfriend and an old fellow hippie, and he loses them both fairly early on in his messiahic travels and travails. The chases, such as they are, are grotesquely abstract. At one point, Theo is trying to escape from his pursuers by pushing a car, the motor which cannot start, down a small hill and then running after it, like the hilarious characters in Little Miss Sunshine. The film ends up drowning in its tortured symbolism when two of the characters occupying a small rowboat in what seems like a small lake. Many people found this ending spiritually inspiring. I found it pretentious. I do agree with that. Yeah. Um, I was particularly disappointed when I, because I greatly admired Quran's uh, Itu Mama Tambien, alas, different genre, different results. So, I mean, number one, how wrong can you be? You know what I mean? Like about some aspects of that review. Sure. Again, I get it. Like, I understand that not everything's for everybody. Um, I think the last shot... Okay, so the very, very, very end of the movie, what he's talking about, like, when the tomorrow comes into view and they're on the boat. Like, I I get that. But, I mean, that's just just his style, you know? I mean, that's him... That's him trying to end the movie on a more positive note. Sure. You just killed the main character of your movie. Yeah. It's supposed to be symbol- symbolic shorthand for positive ending. Right. And it's it, actually almost like the antithesis to the Lord of the Flies where hmm. the boat in the background is kind of like a crutch 
so you can take your eyes away from, you know, the young lieutenant or whatever it is that's on shore in Lord of the Flies can, like, have something to rest his eyes on so he doesn't have to think about the savagery of humanity. This is kind of the opposite of that, where it's like, this boat is, like, the symbol of the beacon of hope of humanity, kind of. Mm-hmm. And it's just, like, starts with the lights in the distance and then fades, you know. Right. And in the fog. And, like, so maybe that's sort of what he was thinking. Um I understand that, like, when, you know, you're, the last thing you see is the thing that, like, you have to take a negative impression away from, but I don't think that that ruins anything or lessens any of the impact of anything else in the movie. Um, and again, I think it was, like, pretty prescient, you know, in terms of where the world was going and what we've become. Um, right. So, I don't know. So, yeah. Any 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 final thoughts on it? No, I mean, I think so. It's it's free on stars, so it's pretty easy to you know watch if you're interested. Um, I think it holds up well. I think if you haven't seen it, like it's worth watching, um, unless you're you know self quarantined or you know not like not self imposed quarantine, and then maybe it's kind of depressing you know to watch. But I I I, I think it bears like you know watching, and I think it's a I think it's a good movie. So so like watch it like maybe like you know like um. August, yeah. Wait for wait like six months and then right. see, right? See what's going on, right? Well, yeah, yeah. Or yeah, like, you know, watch August it now and get kind of like a roadmap to like what you got to do to survive <laughs> in the next couple of years. I don't know. This is certainly out of all these movies the most depressing one, considering um the circumstances right oh, now. Oh, right, a hundred percent. Yeah. Okay, so number one on your list is. 1985, Terry Gilliam-directed movie Brazil, stars Jonathan Price, Robert De Niro, Michael Palin, Kim Greist, Catherine Hellman, Ian Holm, and a whole slew of other character actors. Yeah. It has a 98% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics and a 90% from audiences. Want to tell us a little bit about this movie and what you like about it so much? I, I want to get to the criticism. I want to find out who this... I- two percent motherfucker is man that's do you want to toss it up and you want me to give you the criticism first <sighs> yeah let me hear it okay that's different all right so roger ebert of the chicago sun times what says while orwell's lean prose was translated last year into an equally lean and dour film brazil seems almost like a throwback to the psychedelic 1960s to an, an-, an- anarchic vision in which the best way to improve things is to blow them up the other difference between the two worlds orwell's and the one that was created here by director and co-writer terry gilliam is that gilliam apparently has had no financial restraints although brazil has had a checkered history since it was made for a long time universal studios seemed unwilling to release it there was a lot of money available to make it. The movie is a wash in elaborate special effects, sensational sets, apocalyptic scenes of destruction, and a general lack of discipline. It's as if Gilliam sat down and wrote out all of his fantasies, heedless of production difficulties, and then they were filmed, this time heedless of sense. The movie is very hard to follow. I've seen it twice, and I'm still not exactly sure who all the characters are or how they fit. Perhaps it is not supposed to be clear. Perhaps the movie's air of confusion is part of its paranoid vision. There are individual moments that create sharp images, shock troops drilling through a ceiling, De Niro wrestling with an almost obscene wiring and tubing inside a wall, the movie's obsession with bizarre ductwork, but there seems to be no sure hand at the controls. The best scene in the movie is one of the simplest, as Sam moves into a half 
office and finds himself engaged in a tug of war over his desk with a man through the wall. I was reminded of the Chaplin film, Modern Times, and reminded, too, that in a Chaplin economy and simplicity, in, in Chaplin, economy and simplicity were virtues, not the enemy. Dude, I don't know what to tell you. Like, that's... I don't know, man. Ebert is so, like, fucking willfully obtuse sometimes. Like, he just doesn't, like... Number one, there's some complexity to this movie, but I don't think the movie's hard to follow. I I think... I don't think it's hard to follow. I I agree with that. I understand what's going on in the movie, you know? And, like, Gilliam's thing is, like, infusing... Infusing a strange or complex narrative with his very unique visual style of directing. And particularly his almost like surrealist like eye for set and scene and, you know, shot composition. Like he's very much into blurring the line between reality and fiction or fantasy or whatever in all of his movies especially up to this point i mean what's he he did like time bandits and i guess baron munchausen is after this but it's after that yeah like look there's some things about this movie i could kind of maybe understand i i i i think this is one of the most perfect movies of the 1980s and maybe ever um i think it's a brilliant film it's one of my favorite films probably a top 50 film of all time for me and maybe even higher than that Hmm. i love the way it looks um i love the fact that it's not a happy ending you know i think that i like the idea of the guy who's just trying to live a life like getting sucked into something greater than himself you know and like the fact that he ultimately fails at it is kind of it's like super bleak and like not something that you were used to watching. And like the first time I saw it, I was blown away by the fact that like basically the idea is he gets to live a happy life in his mind, but he's a lobotomized shell in the real world. And like, that's always an interesting question. Like, is that, is that worth it? You know, like, is it, is it better to be ignorant and happy? You know what I mean? Or, awake and miserable and in this movie like it ends with him being basically ignorant and happy and just getting to whatever live a dream life Mm -hmm. i don't know i i love the set design i think that the idea that like everything is taken over by like this incredibly complex ductwork is it's just kind of funny and Mm -hmm it's it's visually represented well you know i mean his idea of himself as like the white knight like rescuing the girl is a it's like pretty pretty cool like symbolism i think you know and i think gilliam does a great job presenting that i don't i the idea of you know constantly trying to reinvent yourself through plastic surgery and the idea that going too far with it could eventually kill you, but also that nobody cares because, you know, Catherine Hellman gets to turn into basically like, it's almost like edible, whatever, because she turns into like the object of her son's affection. And right. Is even though like her friend is dead 
from plastic surgery like she's happy to go and like woo these men because that's the goal is to be young forever because you're rich and you can do it like i don't know there's a lot of a lot of really fascinating stuff in this movie and it plays well just as a movie by itself you know i think it's got some good tongue-in-cheek humor i think it's got some really good fantasy like action sequences to it and i think ultimately it's you know kind of a depressing and thought-provoking movie i agree with all that yeah i I, there's nothing i disagree with and i think it has some really good performances i mean like jonathan prices and and de niro like this was when i first saw this in whatever it was probably like 92 93 or something like that um it was shocking to me with de niro like that de niro had uh comedic timing i just didn't i just at that point i didn't know anything about like his any ability he might have had sure because he's playing the same character sure but price is good and kim greased um is really good in it too yeah and I, I i remember asking you i think the night that i watched it was like what the hell happened to her because like she was in like a number of movies where i i think she was the thing that i liked most about chud is i really liked her a lot in it and then she was in throw mama from the train um as um the billy crystal girlfriend and like she's in a number of things that like she's good in and she just disappears like um i don't know what that was about but um but she's really good in it and uh Catherine Hellman is, is 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 good in it um so it has really good performances I the the only thing I told you the other night was that I think watching it for the first time in like probably like 15 years the heights that I had it at before it wasn't quite as high hmm. but it's still yeah a really like one of the one of the best movies that came out in the 80s I think overall probably yeah, I mean I I don't know if I put it in my top 50 of all time or anything like that, but it's like, it's certainly high. Like, I mean, overall all time movies. I just, I, I, I love Gilliam's visual style. Like I love the aesthetics sure. of Gilliam movies, especially yeah. around this time. It, time Bandit's legitimately one of my, another one of my favorite movies right. ever. Um, especially from a nostalgic standpoint, cause I saw it so much as a kid, but mm-hmm. like I watched Brazil. I've, I've seen this movie a lot. And it was a movie that I used to watch. One of my one of my friends introduced me to it, and we watched it. And I think we watched it like back to back, like we just watched it twice because it was so good. And it's something where I can put it on and just like immediately get sucked into that world and appreciate it. Yeah. And I think it's something where you look at a movie like um, this is maybe a weird analogy, but something like Barton Fink, mm-hmm. where Barton Fink is good, but like the Coens kind of fall short of really like hitting that world on all on on all cylinders and i think that brazil tonally has some similarities but just like Absolutely. gets it right like all over the place like yeah. from start to finish i just think it's yeah i think it's a visual masterpiece and i think it's a thought-provoking you know film and yeah just, and, and i like how it, it's a movie that doesn't necessarily beat you over the head with anything right like it, there there's no talk about the duck work and the wiring but the implications behind using that the way they do in terms of like what we've become right is 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 fascinating yeah another one that's kind of prescient you know 20 years before it's time sure um yeah i don't know i it's 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 weird that like we have a circumstance where i disagree so much with ebert but because I can usually, even if I disagree with his assessment, I can usually kind of understand it. But yeah. man, like I but it's always this way. When you disagree with Ebert, it's because it's usually Ebert just doesn't get the movie. Right. There's just some kind of mental block where he doesn't understand it. 
Maybe he just doesn't like Terry Gilliam. I don't know. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. I can't remember. I, for some reason, I think he didn't like Fear and Loathing either, which is probably one of my more one of my favorite Gilliam movies. Yeah. But um, but that's it's really good. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Um, Maybe he just doesn't like that absurdism mixed in with his like. I don't know. Socio. I'm trying to think. Do you now that I'm thinking about? It, does he get absurdism? I'd have Not to go always. back and yeah. I don't think he gets genre films, and I think that Brazil, because of its special effects and its overall like future tone, it, like maybe he feels like it's too much of a genre film, and he maybe. doesn't understand. I don't know. That's... Like at this point in his career, how people can enjoy that stuff, or I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure. All right, any final thoughts on this or the no. list at all? I mean, I I love Brazil. I think that everyone should yeah. see Brazil. Okay. All right, so I guess that's going to be our list for the night. Um, in the coming weeks, uh, we are going to have our next podcast is going to be the night, uh, top foreign films of 1995. And then in April, we will have, at some point, our first third man series in a while on best animated film and then we will have the top five movies that chris loves and frank hates god that fucking list um i'm rewatching them <sighs> and, and, I, and i still like all of them frank. Right, i bet you do and i um, still love all of them can't wait and then we also have the top five bergman um mm. movies which we had had planned before um Dow's death but um so I'm I'm excited for that list. Yeah, me too. Um, I'll be spending a lot of time on the Criterion channel, I'm sure. So that's what we have coming up. Um, as always, you can follow us on Facebook or Instagram. And if you have any ideas for lists, you can contact us through those uh, platforms. Uh, beyond that, I hope everybody um, is making out all right and tries to stay safe. And my only thing is uh, just say try to keep your humanity um, yeah. as we go through this. Um, stay six feet away from me. Right. All right. Please. Everybody have a good night. Have a good night. <laughs>